If we get to a situation where we have large parts of the country that remain unvaccinated, we, we're not going to see an end. And we really risk having this rage on for months, if not years, to come. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Ann Sassen contracted COVID-19 in early April, a disease that had been the focus of her academic work suddenly became personal for her. Sassen, a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy at Dartmouth College, has been studying how rural communities in Vermont and New Hampshire have responded to the pandemic. Lately, she has been a rare public health expert who has publicly criticized Governor Phil Scott's relaxation of health restrictions as the governor moves to reopen the state by July 4th. Sassen has warned against opening up too quickly and endangering the health of young people in particular. Her warnings have been prescient, as Vermont has seen a spike of infections among young people as schools have reopened to in-person instruction. Her prescience hit home when her daughter's childcare provider called her a few weeks ago to say that she had a positive COVID test result. Sassen and her daughter both tested positive. Sassen first spoke publicly about this to Vermont Digger last week. I began by asking Sassen how her personal experience with COVID has affected her both physically and in her views about how the pandemic is being managed. I um, recently contracted COVID-19. As you know, um, I spent the year last year relatively sheltered uh, from the virus. Um, However, my um, eight-year-old daughter was exposed um, through um, a neighbor who had provided childcare to us over the last year, and I was subsequently infected as well. Um, Just um, shortly after receiving my first dose of um, the COVID-19 vaccine. So what were your symptoms and your daughter's? um, My daughter had a relatively mild course of illness. She had um, fever, um, a little bit of cough, um, a sore throat and a headache for about a day. Um, My symptoms were also um, relatively mild. I had Um, high fever, body pain, um, a a little bit of shortness of breath um, for a couple of days um, and fatigue. Um, But thankfully, I'm now recovering um, from the illness. Are there any lingering effects for you? I I don't have quite as much energy um, as I normally do, um, but I am recovering well at this point. You know, I asked this because uh, I was just having a conversation with a friend last night, uh, and I was asking her, do you know anybody personally who's had COVID? Uh, She said no. I said no. Um, And, you know, I think for a lot of people, that may be the answer. So um, (laughs) I'm wondering, uh, how does having COVID, how has it changed your thinking about this disease, since it's something you've written and spoken about a lot? I think the experience of having um, COVID has helped me understand um, what many others in our state and in other places um, have faced over the last year. You know, I expected to have a relatively mild course of illness. I'm young and healthy. And um, that that was the case, um, but I felt a great deal of uncertainty um, when I realized that um, we had been exposed and then when I tested positive. I didn't 
you know, I, I, I didn't know um, what the next days would hold. And I also had concern um, about developing long COVID or chronic form of the disease. Um, the second thing that it helped me to understand um, was the secondary impacts that go far beyond health. I am currently teaching um, two classes. My daughter is in school. She was forced to um, quarantine. Um, I was trying to hold together um, my work during that time. And so many other people were affected um, by, you know, what was really a very, what was a relatively, you know, mild, um, you know, form of the disease. So I, I, I really, uh, have come to understand the ways in which the impacts of COVID-19 go so far beyond um, those that we see um, in terms of the, just the illness itself. Hmm. Um, let me go to some of the um, issues that you've pointed out of concern. Um, Vermont has been cited nationally for having some of the best metrics around covid but you've been critical. What do you think Vermont has done well and where has it fallen short? Yes, so I think Vermont has done um, many things really well and have written extensively about some of the lessons that come out of our state. I think the leadership acted early in the pandemic um, to avert many of the worst outcomes seen elsewhere. I think that Vermont prioritized its vulnerable populations using you know, uh, Sort of comprehensive and thoughtful set of policies um, and protections. Um, the Vermont um, notably um, employed expansive housing protections um, for um, which we now recognize as being a really important tool of pandemic control. I think the state um, did a really um, a really good job of cultivating a sense of social solidarity and of engaging the population in the response. Um, I also think that the state um, did well at using um, the CARES Act um, and other relief money coming in um, to mitigate some of the secondary impacts of the public health measures that were put into place. Um, I want to also say that while I, that's, I, the state leadership did many things well, we should also recognize the really important contribution of our health systems, our communities, and our social service agencies and other actors across the state. The Vermont response is really much more um, than what happens um, two days a week at the um, at the podium of press conferences. And there have been you know, thousands of Vermonters working behind the scenes um, to respond to the pandemic. And you know, those efforts, I think, really need to be recognized, um, particularly as we, you know, close out um, a year of the response. And where do you think Vermont has fallen short? You know, I, I think that Vermont has fallen short in some ways in this last phase of the pandemic response. Um, I have been concerned by um, a series of decisions over the last few months. Um, I really had hoped that the state would have a much greater focus um, on equity and recognize the centrality of equity to um, public health effectiveness um, in rolling out the vaccine. Um, I was really concerned um, to see um, the ways in which the state responded um, to the outbreak um, in the Newport um, Correctional Facility, um, watching the state um, disregard the recommendations of its own advisory committee, 
really represented a, a point of um, a, a point of concern for me. I also think that while the state really re represented a model in terms of its approach to schools, um, that it's backed off or, or it's moved away from some of the lessons that were so critical um, to um, to the ways to reopening schools um, earlier in the year. The state. Um, I think did a really good job at reopening schools, um, but the return um, to more uh, to full in-person education um, has um, has it's it has it's sometimes it's in some ways not um, not gone as smoothly as it might. What do you think would have been or should be? A better way to dance. I mean, do you think schools should not have reopened in-person education? know uh, I, I, I've always thought that Vermont was well positioned to reopen its schools, but I believe that the public health response really needs to be fully aligned with the goal of reopening schools and of expanding in-person education. Um, what do I mean by that? I think that one of the things that Vermont did really well is that it engaged schools as key actors in the public health response. Schools called upon communities to take actions to keep transition low. Um, they played a key role in enforcing and implementing the guidance coming out from the state. Um, and they also fulfilled key public health functions, including contact tracing when capacity at state level became strained. Um, one thing that we saw over the course of the winter was the state backed away a little bit from that, uh, that approach and really went from focusing on how to optimize conditions um, for opening and maintaining in-person education to the evidence that in-person or that the transmission um, in school can be limited um, with good um, mitigation measures in place. Um, and the result of this was that as transmission increased, a lot of schools experienced very significant disruptions in academic operations, even if they were able to limit, um, uh, limit in-school transmission of the virus. And so I think the state didn't fully recognize um, the importance of maintaining some of those measures that had it had put in place in the fall, and then um, and then some of the additional um, measures that were layered over um, that in November when we saw an increase in cases. Hmm. You raise concern that loosening restrictions in school exposes more young people to getting COVID, and you've addressed the issue of uh, that it's often young people who are doing frontline. Uh, people facing jobs, uh, waiting tables, that kind of thing. What are your concerns about that? You know, we often hear this sort of poo-pooed that, well, young people don't really get sick from COVID. So what are you seeing? What are your concerns? So it's true that um, young people are at much lower risk of severe illness or um, in death. Um, and we um, that said, we do know that some young people um, will have se severe forms um, of COVID-19 and will require hospitalization. Um, but young people are, remain at risk of long COVID or chronic forms of the disease. We see many young people who are infected a year ago who continue to experience debilitating symptoms, who are unable to work. Um, and enjoy their lives as they did before the pandemic. And as we look ahead, 
Um, we have reason to for concern that this will impose a significant burden not only on population on health, but on our healthcare system, on our workforce, um, and on other um, social services. So I've been really concerned with the emerging discourse that um, high rates of infection don't really matter if they're happening among young people. Um, there's yeah, what are we what are we seeing in terms of long COVID in young people? Are they more susceptible or, or what do we know? No, young people are not more susceptible to long COVID. However, um, they are susceptible um, to long COVID. So even young and healthy people um, continue to experience long COVID. About 10 to 30 percent um, of um, people infected with COVID go on to develop um, long COVID. Uh, the evidence continues um, to emerge on long COVID. There's still a lot that we don't know. Um, but even um, with some uncertainty around what the uh, long-term trajectory will be for those infected with COVID, um, I have argued that we really need to take measures that recognize um, the risks um, that this virus poses to young people. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing in Vermont and New Hampshire in terms of rural communities and how they're responding to COVID. What are you seeing? Uh, sure. So Elizabeth Carpenter Song and I initiated research in March of 2020 to understand the impact of COVID-19 on our rural health systems and our rural communities. And our research is really focused um, on the vulnerable populations that we see across the region. We've spoken um, at this point with more than 80 stakeholders um, across New Hampshire and Vermont, um, many of them on several occasions, in an effort to really understand what the rural face of the pandemic was. We've also looked um, in both New Hampshire and Vermont at the statewide response um, to contextualize what we were seeing um, in our rural communities. Um, our work has helped us to understand um, the, um, the role of state policy, but also the critical actions that were undertaken by our health systems and our communities to implement um, measures coming out of the state and in some cases to substitute for the lack of action at state um, level. And that was particularly the case in New Hampshire, where there was a much less robust response on the part of state government. Hmm. Um, the two states are diverging now, as we know that New Hampshire Governor Sununu has done away with the mask mandate. Vermont has not yet done that. Uh, what are you seeing? Are the consequences of this? And I'm curious, Anecdotally, is do you immediately see now in New Hampshire are people not wearing masks? I would say that the two states diverged in the fall. Um, and what we're seeing right now is the continuation of the di divergence that, um, that we've seen over several months. Both states took really early action um, in March um, to curb transmission. And so the local responses played out against the backdrop of relatively robust um, state responses on both sides of the Connecticut River. Um, in November, when we saw an increase in cases in both New Hampshire and Vermont, Vermont took much more aggressive action to reverse those trends and was able to bring its case numbers down. While no, no, New Hampshire 
um, was one of the last states to institute a mask mandate and um, was um, reluctant to put in place other measures that have been critical to its early success. Um, I'm not surprised to see um, that Vermont has held many of its public health measures in place um, as um, New Hampshire has dropped its mask mandate um, and will um, um, will relax other restrictions over the next um, couple of weeks. So does New um, Hampshire have worse outcomes, worse numbers right now? New Hampshire has had worse um, numbers um, throughout the pandemic. Even when we adjust um, for population size, we see um, that New Hampshire has had more um, than um, two times the deaths um, uh, um, as Vermont um, and has fared um, much more poorly than Vermont. And obviously there are differences across the states, but they're not fully explained um, by population size or by other factors. Hmm. What does that tell you? And when you say two times the deaths, obviously New Hampshire has far larger population. Do you mean per deaths per, you know, 100,000? Yeah, yeah, deaths if we adjust for population. So New Hampshire... Um, I believe at this point has had about 1,300 deaths, obviously Vermont, um, just short of 250 deaths. And so if we adjust for population size, we see still that um, New Hampshire um, has done far more um, poorly. And we see the same differences in terms of, um, you know, cases, um, hospitalizations as well. Well, these have, uh, New Hampshire and Vermont have always been very odd, a uh, very odd couple. <laughs> Uh, we're always having to explain to people the license plate logos, how live free or die uh, lives alongside of, you know, Vermont and Bernie Sanders. What do you think? Um, but it's always interesting to look at these two states as a microcosm of the country. What are your conclusions when you uh, see the outcomes and po current policies of New Hampshire and Vermont? You know, the New Hampshire and Vermont are certainly a study in contrast. Um, New Hampshire has taken a local control um, approach as it does with many things. Um, Vermont has had a much more robust um, statewide response. That said, we've seen strengths emerge across the rural regions of both states um, that are, you know, a reflection of many of the strengths that we see across our rural regions. And so um, while, you know, we see significant differences um, across the bi-state region, um, I, 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 I do want to emphasize um, that there, you know, there are many lessons um, that emerge, um, not only from Vermont, which has performed far better than um, New Hampshire, but also from some the, some of the rural regions in New Hampshire. Um, I would highlight the work that happen, is happening in the North Country of New Hampshire, um, the local um, public health networks and groups there um, have really um, done a phenomenal job of ensuring access um, to vaccines for the most remote residents of that region. And the um, vaccination um, numbers in Coas County, the northernmost county of New Hampshire, outpaced the rest of the state. Um, so there's a lot that we can, um, we can learn um, from New Hampshire's rural responses. When we look forward and look at the whole country, I'm curious what you see lies ahead where it looks like the U.S. 
is going to divide, uh, and it is also largely along political lines. You know, the traditional red states, the deep south, places that have been very, uh, Texas, Florida, places that have been very resistant to mask mandates. It seems that, you know, if if people don't, not mask mandates, to vaccination, um, and they have low vaccination rates. So what's going to happen in a country where, as I'm picturing it, the Northeast, uh, the West Coast are going to have a pretty high uptake of the vaccine, the South and perhaps the center part of the country are going to have low uptake of, uh, you know, vaccination rates. Um, how's that going to work for a pandemic? Is it just going to be raging in some parts of the country endlessly and more or less suppressed in our region? It, it, it's a real concern right now. You know, ending the pandemic um, requires putting an end um, to the epidemic, not only um, in Vermont and other northeastern states, but to um, the rest of the U.S. and the rest of the world. And so if we um, if we get to a situation where we have large um parts of the country that remain unvaccinated, we, we're not going to see an end. And we we really risk having, um, you know, this rage on for months, if not years um, to come. We've already, we're already, seen, you know, recognizing um, the risk of having new um, variant strains emerge um, that threaten not only um, the, the regions um, that they come from, but also other places that um, potentially other places um, that have achieved widespread vaccination coverage. My concern is that we're going to end up with um, pockets, um, if not entire regions of the country um, that remain unvaccinated, and we're going to see the virus continue to spread um, and, and mutate. Um, I think we really need to at this phase of vaccination, think about what are the strategies that are going to overcome the resistance and hesitancy that um, we see in place and really think what policies, what strategies can we employ um, to engage um, those populations in vaccination efforts. There's some creative initiatives coming out of different places um, and we really need to think about what is it that's going to move the needle on this. Um, I think we can overcome most of the sources of hesitancy, um, but we but we really need um, we, we really need good thinking around this at this point in time. You've worked internationally in Haiti and Rwanda. Um, what do you think we could learn from, say, Rwanda, which is having fairly good results in its management of COVID? Rwanda has done exceptionally well. I was in Rwanda when the country rolled out the cervical cancer vaccine, um, at, you know, a new vaccine in that country. And in, um, in the first year, it achieved 94% coverage um, of the vaccine, which is really astonishing. Um, you know, one of the things that has been critical um, to Rwanda's success in confronting the pandemic um, has been its prioritization of its vulnerable populations. It acted really early to put protections in place 
Um, there's also a great deal of trust um, within the health system. So many have looked to leaders um, for guidance um, and have you know, followed the measures that have been in place. Um, the, Rwanda has also mobilized um, its um, infrastructure of community health workers and others to respond. And those are lessons that we can translate out to other settings. It's going to be really important in places where we have low um, low coverage of vaccination to and think about who are the trusted messengers, what are the trusted community institutions, and how can we begin to leverage them more effectively in overcoming um, some of the resistance that we see? Um, how can we engage primary care providers or religious leaders or others who um, play an integral role in communities and are seen in some ways as um, is, is separate from them, the, the, the politics um, that have really in some ways or in many ways interfered with the pandemic and an effective pandemic response. Well, Anne Sauce, and I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. Anne Sossen is a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy at Dartmouth College. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.